Welcome to the Being Human podcast with Amelia Vegting and Jez Francis. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Hi, I'm Amelia Vegting. And I'm Jez Francis, and welcome to the Being Human podcast, where we explore what it means to be human in this world we find ourselves living in. So, Amelia, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Jez. Really excited to be here recording in our brand new studio. How are you doing today? I'm great. Yeah, it is nice to be in a different studio. And for me in particular, uh, it's half term week. The family have all disappeared Mm. off on holiday, and I'm stuck at home with Dennis the dog. Uh, have been for the last few days now so we are running low on things to talk about (laughs) the two of us so I'm really pleased to be here with you and the team enjoying the company of some human beings. (laughs) I'm also really looking forward to talking with our guest today Owen Eastwood um, one of the most in-demand performance coaches in the world right now who places our universal human need to belong uh, you know to feel powerfully connected to something bigger than ourselves at the centre of the groundbreaking work he's doing with Gareth Southgate's England football team for example the Royal Ballet um, the NATO command group to name just a few. Yeah Owen's worked with some amazing people I wonder what he's going to take away from 30 minutes of a conversation with you and I, Jess. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he's going to learn a lot. Um, but that, no, that's a good point. So look, if I can get my head around this fantastic topic of belonging and togetherness, then I'm sure anyone can. Um, joking aside, in my experience, the need to feel belonging really is in all of us. Um, you know, For some people, perhaps more powerfully felt than others, but there nonetheless, I know it's there in me. Okay, so what springs to mind for you then when we start mentioning belonging? Um, I think growth. You know, whenever I've done something new or groundbreaking for me, both physical and spiritual, it struck me that I've had to feel deeply connected to the people I've been with. Otherwise, the opportunity to grow and learn just just hasn't sort of, you know, come Mm. about, hasn't happened. Um, And sanctuary also, you know, acceptance of who I am, uh, warts and all. Too much information there, (laughs) Jess. But, you know, when I felt when I felt free from having to pretend to be someone or something that I'm not, which in itself can be quite exhausting, I have found sort of new energy and power to do stuff. What about you, Amelia? What does belonging mean to you? I think for me, it would be about um, three words that spring to mind are happiness, safety and um, warmth. I think overall, that sense of feeling that you're welcome, you can be Mm. yourself in an environment is where you can thrive in that feeling of belonging. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And of course, when you feel you belong and can really be yourself, it's perhaps easier to share the more humdrum stories of our lives. Jez, are you subtly trying to ask us whether we can dive straight into boring things about me? Yes, (laughs) yes, I think it's time for uh, that bit of our podcast where we celebrate the more mundane parts of life. Right, so Amelia... Come on, boring things about me. Tell me yours. Okay, so mine is that the other day we had an issue with our fridge in the flat. Nice. In, yes, good place to start. We noticed there was quite a bit of water sat around. And we sort of looked at the settings. It hadn't been frozen and then, you know, we hadn't adjusted those. They were all still the same. Um, and my housemate got home and he had said that he had had this issue before. So we're bringing in some new expertise. Yeah, Excellent. Um, And what he shared is a trick that they had actually called somebody out to come and fix for them 
is the use of a paper clip nice. to, you know, get it straight. Then where the little clasp is at the back of the fridge, I'm sure you'll know the term, Jez, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. I'm resisting the temptation. Yeah. yeah. Um, to just put the paper clip in there. The drain. The, the little dr- drain. The little drain. Yeah, yeah. Um, paper clip goes in. Give it a bit of a wiggle. And you just watch the water drain away. just drain away. So there was three of us all absolutely captured and fascinated Mesmerized. by it completely. I do have a paperclip uh, story. Oh, go on. A bore- Tell us more. boring thing about me. So, you know, that moment in a phone's life mm. when uh, it stops charging easily oh, and you have yeah. to sort of wiggle the charging cable around in the bottom yeah, of it. Yeah, quite irritating when that very, happens. Very, very. So I, t- I remember taking mine then into the phone shop and expecting to be told, yeah, the phone's beyond its useful life, as it were, and mm. it was time to get a new one. And the chap said, oh, no, no, you just, you just grab a paperclip, which he did, un- sort of unfolded it, and then dug around in the bottom uh, where you put the power lead in, mm. pulled out loads of sort of pocket fluff, oh, nice. as, I, as I, I would describe it, and handed it back to me and said, well, there you go, that's fixed. And sure enough, I plugged it in and perfect, took a charge first time. So, that, so there we go. And I think the moral of both of these stories is... A paperclip has many, many uses. Always carry a paperclip around. (laughs) There we go, folks. Boring things about me. (laughs) Welcome, Owen, to the Being Human podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me. Yeah, look, thank you for joining us. We know you're a busy man working with teams all over the world. But before we head into all of that, can we ask you a few questions just to get to know you a bit better first? Of course, yeah. So our first question for you, when you're not out and about doing your day job, what do you do to relax? A bit of a maybe corny answer, but I love being around my family and around home when I'm not busy and not traveling. That's the number one thing. And when we're together, we, we do have a lot of fun. We don't, we don't just sort of sit around the house. We, we do activities and have little adventures. So my life is very much sort of orientated around work adventures and family adventures. Who would you most like to go on a road trip with and why? Uh, I think the person who definitely stands out would be Bruce Springsteen. Nice. And, and I still haven't figured this out why, but I was a little boy growing up in a very small town in the South Island of New Zealand. And I, w- I could have sworn he was specifically speaking about where I grew up and his music. And all the way through my life, I've found him very influential and in understanding my own sense of identity and giving me hope and optimism. And my children know his music extremely well <laughs> for the fact that it's been in the car all of their lives. So I, I would love to have a sing-along with him in the car, and I'd also like to just ask him so many questions really about uh, his own life and his vulnerability, which which I think... Comes through very strongly, doesn't it? Yeah, doesn't exactly. And I, it's something that, you know, I, I would always want to be braver than I am. I think he could, he's someone who could teach me about that. Wow, my, I have to say that resonates with me quite a bit because my dad is a avid Bruce Springsteen fan. He's going to see him in London, Amsterdam and Rome this year. So I've definitely grown up with <laughs> Bruce Springsteen CDs on all sorts of various road trips. What, Owen, what is your earliest childhood memory? I'll tell you what, it's interesting that because I, I'm not sure what are memories and what is mythology when I think back, you know, my father passed away when I was five and so many of my early memories are of him. But I, I can't really attest to how many of them factually happened and how many of them are in my imagination. Um, the very first one I remember was being in his van 
and we lived in the countryside and we had a little road leading up to our house and I was playing around in the back of the van. I was told not to do that, but I was doing it while he was driving and I opened the door and fell out and he got back to the house and the door was open and he, I wasn't there. <laughs> you weren't there. So he, he, he tracked back and, you know, a couple hundred yards and found me in a puddle. <laughs> I also remember him and my mother dancing together in our kitchen. But again, I think I remember that, or, but maybe it was a mythology I've created. I'm not too sure. And it's sort of part of my whole life and my work as well is that whole identity stories we build. And actually, yeah. I, I get less bothered about how much of it is factual over time. Owen, let me ask you, how would you like to be remembered? Um, a couple of months ago, my daughter, she's, she's nine, she gave me a card and on the, in the middle of the card, she had written kind. And I think that that's became my greatest aspiration. I hadn't really been that conscious about it, but she seemed to see me as a kind person. And I honestly couldn't think of anything greater than that, that I'd like my children, my family to remember me by. And I suppose mm-hmm. when it comes to the work that I do, people might not necessarily use the word kind, but I'd want them to know that I cared about them. And what would you say is the most important lesson life has taught you? Um, I think it's something that my ancestors passed down and it's nothing new. And that is, you know, we need to walk with humility. No one is entitled to anything. And everything that we experience is going to have some pain in it and some joy in it. And you've got to be up for both of them. Last year was a classic example. Got involved in some amazing teams and projects but we lost two people in our family who were very, very important to us. And we, we built a new house and we moved in it, which was exciting. But then we didn't get a chance to spend it with those people that we really wanted to. That's life. Mm. Whatever we're doing, never get above yourself. Just stay very, very grounded in your own sense of identity and um, listen carefully to your own narrative and don't let other people tell you how great you are or how poor you are. Wise words indeed. Just to round us off then, Owen, could you please share something with um, us that celebrates something perhaps a a bit more on the boring scale about you, so something mundane um, about you that our listeners might want to know? Something that is probably very boring for a lot of people, but it's not to me, is during COVID, I'm a big sports fan, and during COVID I got very uncomfortable watching sports events with no fans in the stadium. So I actually reverted back to a library that I'd put together over the years of sports games from when I was a kid. So I'm from New Zealand, so our national rugby team, the All Blacks, are sort of my main team that I love. And so during um, COVID, instead of watching what was being thrown in front of us, I went back into time to the years and was very nostalgic and watched the teams that I worshipped when I was a kid. I've continued that on, actually. So when I get a few spare hours each week, rather than watching a Premier League game or something, I actually dip into my library and put on the TV and watch something from when I was sort of 14, 15, 16 years old and watch My Old Heroes. I think a lot of people would probably find that a bit bizarre and and particularly boring. But um, as we might get into in the conversation, I actually think nostalgia is very, very important. In fact, a lot of our sense of belonging comes back in time from our memories Mm. I'm very comfortable living part of my life back in my story not just in it today 
So what year have you got to with the All Blacks then? Where are you at at the moment? I'm up to 1984. And actually just sort of a slightly wider point than that, um, you know, I'm working with different corporate teams at the moment and, 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 and a couple of sports teams. Everybody is talking about how this is a moment in time of incredible tumultuous change, uncertainty, mm. confusion, chaos, and all the rest of it. And we've always been living in those times. I mm. honestly believe that. And, and in fact, through my boring activity of watching the sports of 1984 <laughs> at the moment, and actually also... Born in the USA by Springsteen came out in 1984. So <laughs> there's a hook. Two passions come together. <laughs> well, I thought, actually, I thought and last weekend, I thought, why don't I dip into the newspapers of, of 1984, like beyond the boss and beyond the sports things, what was going on? Because, again, I've been asked in the last week or so twice to do a sort of keynote speech and, and focusing on the, how crazy the times are and everything will be back to normal at some point. Mm. And I looked at it in, in February 1984, and I remember this vividly, where I lived in New Zealand, we had an incredible flood, and we actually ourselves were flooded. We had to be evacuated. I'd actually forgotten about that, but I looked at the newspaper and I saw that. The newspaper also mentioned how this is 1984. You think about all the fear of what's happening in Ukraine, there was a nuclear war threat going on there in a big mm. time. And there was a film that came out called The Day After, which I remember mm. we were forced to watch at school. And even though we were the furthest place in the world, probably away from a nuclear war, I had absolute nightmares about that film. And I saw in this article the other day how there were surveys, I think in the Netherlands, um, where something like 70% of children in the early 80s thought that the country would be destroyed by a nuclear attack. So you're talking about traumatised people. Also, inflation was about 15%. The February 1984, the Sarajevo Winter Olympics happened, which many people would say were the best Winter Olympics ever. Absolutely amazing. By the next decade, that country, Yugoslavia, didn't exist and torn itself apart. And the fans that were there cheering on their skiers, et cetera, were were killing each other. Mm. So so that was just a random month I thought I'd look back in. And so I don't believe that this is unique particularly. The time we're living in today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do find a little bit of safety in some ways of going back to the past and seeing the fact that we navigated it. And I I get inspired by the leaders who got us through those things because that was was a real time there. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I know that sort of part of creating a sense of belonging with others calls upon us to share of ourselves so a lovely way to ease us into the topic that we're going to be exploring with you today yes so Owen how would you define belonging the way I think about belonging is that you are in a place where you are seen you are cared for and you are included they're the key things for me and what experiences are common to those then what feelings and emotions are common to those who who feel like they belong to a group or a community at any given time well the, the way i sort of talk about it is it's actually not so much a cognitive thing it's a hormonal thing if you're in a situation mm. where you don't really feel you belong or in the way i expressed it you don't really feel seen you don't really feel included you don't really feel that the people care for you you feel like an outsider you feel like you're being judged all the time and if something goes wrong then you may be rejected. When you're feeling all of those things, you don't have to think about it. Your hormones will tell you exactly what's going on. Your anxiety levels will be really, really high. And, you'll be, and, you, and we can measure these things, and some teams do measure these things. 
you'll see that your oxytocin levels, your dopamine levels are really suppressed by cortisol and other stress hormones and, and often adrenaline. So you feel tired, you feel de-energized, you feel very, very distracted from the actual work. You're getting exhausted because all of the, when a peer or a leader makes a comment, you will analyze the hell out of it because of mm. your insecurity in that environment rather than just taking it on face value and moving forward. You're in a position of fear because you may not understand something or you may feel you haven't quite got the tools to do what's being asked, but you are not prepared to make yourself vulnerable. You don't trust the environment enough to be vulnerable. So you will keep that to yourself. Your communication, particularly guys, will start to really, really fall away. Mm. And so, so to me, the first the, the way I look about it is not really a state of mind. It's a hormonal state that we feel when we go into any environment. And then it's the behaviors which naturally flow from that. That's what I'm looking at. And I have been in, in environments and I will continue to be my whole life <laughs> where my hormones will signal to me whether I feel like I belong there or not. And when you, presumably when, you, when your neurochemistry is telling you that you, know, you don't belong, you can't perform, right? Or you can't, certainly can't perform at your best. No. I mean, there's two parts to belonging from an individual point of view. One is it's an absolutely essential ingredient of our well-being. Mm-hmm. I think the, the research shows that if you suffer from chronic loneliness and social isolation, you're something like four times more likely to have a mental health event and four times more likely to have cardiovascular issues. So there's absolutely no question that for 99.9% of human history, and I'd say 100% of human history, we have to belong to a group to survive. Mm. Um, The other part of it is that when we're in an environment where we feel we belong, then we have an opportunity to get somewhere near our full potential in terms of performance. Um, But if we are in a completely different hormonal state, then the beha- our behaviours will naturally take us away from that. We won't be open, we won't be vulnerable, we won't trust the people around us. We will mm. be risk-averse. All of those things are not what we're looking for in a high-performing team. I guess that sort of touches on what was going to be my next question. What else do you think is important about feeling like you belong? Well, you know, I can give an example. When I first arrived in the United Kingdom about 20 years ago from New Zealand, I joined a law firm. And I hadn't practiced in this country. I actually, of course, hadn't studied in this country. So I was coming from a Commonwealth understanding of my area of law, not a, an English. So, you know, you, so, so you are an outsider by definition. And also you can feel a little bit like an imposter because mm. everyone else has got these qualifications and you haven't. So I interviewed for the job with a really good law firm and got it. And I ended up staying there 15 years and became a partner. But in my first year, I didn't feel like I belonged. And in the very first meeting that I was actually in, uh, it was a meeting where we were reviewing on a monthly basis the latest legal developments. And at the very end of it, I thought I'll be very brave and I'll put my hand up and I'll try and have a go at sort of summarizing a recent case. You know, I'd obviously done my research. And so I did that, and, and I did that because I wanted to be to belong and I wanted to feel that way. Mm. When I finished, not in a mean or cruel way, but when I finished, someone just picked up on my accent and the way I'd pronounced one word and repeated the word with my accent and the room sort of murmured with, a, with laughter. And, again, it wasn't meant in a cruel way, mm. but 
that what that did is sent me a very powerful signal that you are different, that you um, don't belong here, and you're an outsider. And I, for the next 12 months, I didn't contribute once to those meetings. And that, mm. that led to performance issues. For example, I wouldn't have read up on those cases as well as I should have probably because I knew I wasn't going to volunteer and summarize it in front of the group. Um, I also had a perception that, you know, I actually need to be as better than everyone else to prove myself. So I wasn't vulnerable at all. So I was doing all these little things to survive in there, which were taking away from my best performance. It took me probably a year and a half to settle back into feeling like I belong there. That's how sensitive the whole thing is. It doesn't have to be someone being horrible or anything. It's just the signals that you're receiving from your environment. So to me, these this is very real. It's not theoretical. I'm not an academic. I've experienced it. So have both mm. of you. It's a visceral experience, isn't yeah. it? I mean, what are your first memories of feeling the need to belong, um, to be part of and connected to, to something bigger than just you? My father was half English and half Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. He was an only child. As I mentioned before, he passed away very suddenly when I was five. He was only 41. And I had three siblings. And as we all grew up, my siblings seemed to be able to create an identity story for themselves, which was pretty serviceable. I never did. Um, and I, I just felt like I'm part English part Maori, but I have no connection to either of them. Um, I'd even watched the All Blacks do the haka on the television, and I should have felt a lot of pride about that because it's a Maori ritual. And, but because I didn't have a connection and didn't really feel I belonged to that tribe, I actually just made me feel uncomfortable. So as a young teenager, I was very uncomfortable with myself and I wasn't very confident at all. I felt like uh, lost. I felt lost. So when I was 12, I wrote a letter to the Maori tribe, probably a bit of an act of desperation, but I just explained this is my father and this is his mother. My grandma Rose was a Maori. And do you know who I am? And they, and they did. They wrote the most beautiful letter back to me saying, we know who you are and you belong here, and gave me a list of my ancestors back a thousand years, even though we only had a written language in the 1800s when the missionaries arrived. It's all through oral history wow. and storytelling. And they told me the stories of them. Interestingly, they picked out as the most inspirational ancestors woman. My grandmother uh, five generations ago in particular was the force of nature, and they told me the stories of her. Mm. And that, that I remember as a 12-year-old receiving a letter which said directly that you belong here, and it was a feeling of complete euphoria. Again, it might sound corny, but whether it's someone coming into the England football team, someone at the Royal Ballet School, whatever it is, I want everyone to have that feeling of people looking you in the eye, having a big smile on their face and say, you belong here and we care about you. It's an incredible mm. place to be as a human being. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. So when you tell that story, does it take you back to that moment when you received that letter? The way mm, you're saying it, it is quite um, powerful and very emotional, emotive, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it does. And you know, I'm lucky enough to to occasionally get asked to speak, and and I often share that story, and I quite often will be tearful when I tell it because it that is a massive moment in my life. It changed my whole identity. 
narrative, but also, you know, now that I'm a coach, it's the absolute backbone of my coaching. Uh, maybe why I'm a bit different and maybe why I get sought after by, you know, quite conventional and teams is that they're looking for something unconventional and they understand that belonging is a very emotional part of our existence and it's not an academic dry subject. And that connection to the sort of the chain of people that have gone before you as well, very, very powerful, isn't it? Very grounding, I think. Yeah, well, this is this, this Maori concept of waka papa and that's also, you know, as a 12-year-old, as as well as his information about my ancestry and all that, what, what they said to me to, you know, capture it very simply was, as you go into the world, you need to understand your place in it. And then they explain this beautiful idea of wakapapa, which is that you are one person in a line of people, all the way back to our origin story, with our arms interlocked. But you're also mm-hmm. part of this line of people that go into the future at the very end of time. And what, all what's happened is the sun first shone on our first ancestors and our origin story, and it's slowly moving down this line of people. So you have always been part of this line of people, and you always will be. And within that, there will be a time when the sun's shining on you, i.e. you're alive. Mm. And while that is happening, you need to understand that you need to be a guardian of what has come before you. You need to meet the moment, whatever that moment is. You need to meet it for the people. Mm. And then you need to create the conditions for those who follow you to thrive. That is all you need to do in your life. Your worth is not judged by materialism or wealth. It's by judged about how you uh, maintain our culture. And they emphasize the point that that's not just about their culture. That's about any community you belong to. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, I really take that into everything that I do. It could be a business, could be an organization, can be a nation, can be a school, any community you belong to. I see it as that line of people with the sun moving down. And as you know, you know, Gareth Southgate loves that idea. And often he is, you know, before we go into tournaments, he will talk about the sun shining on us and we're going to write the next chapter of the story. I think that's a very empowering way just to think about work and what you're doing with your colleagues around you. How did you see that play out in the England football team? Well, I've been involved in the last three tournaments and um, they've all been progressive, in my view. So we obviously, the first one, we made the semi-final of the World Cup, then we made the final of the European Championships. And then the last World Cup, we um, lost to in the quarterfinal to France, who, who were the reigning champions. But I regard all of those as progressive. All of them, we have connected the players to the history of the team in a way that never happened before. You know, I've spoken to former players like Michael Owen, who was there in that wore the shirt for over a decade, and he's that we never ever talked about teams in the past. So we understand that this shirt has been passed down to us and we're the temporary custodians of it. So we need to understand where that shirt's been. And not only is it the highlight packages of the sixty six World Cup, but also the places of pain and the and at times places of shame in that like every family, every community has those. So we talk about those and then we spend time visualising, visioning what is a chapter of the story that we want to write together. And, you know, in Russia, we wanted to make some history. We'd never won a penalty shootout at a World Cup. We hadn't got out. We hadn't won a playoff match, a knockout match for over a decade. Um, There are a whole lot of things that we hadn't, uh, achieved as a team. So this is, was an opportunity for us to write our own history and, and, and leave our own legacy. So we've, we've continued to do that. And now we feel we're in a position where we can bring home a trophy from one of these tournaments. 
mm. you know, which would be a particularly powerful legacy. So it's a, it's a, it's an empowering way of just framing rather than going to a tournament with all the tactics and everything and the game plan or the logistics. It's actually we do all that, but we're stepping back and thinking from a, just a human point of view, what the hell are we about to embark on? How does the environment that we find ourselves in um, influence us as humans and the extent to which we can belong? Well, lots of ways. I sometimes talk about the 70% insight. So the English Institute of Sport did a meta study of a thousand studies maybe a decade ago, and they found that 70% of human behavior is determined by whatever environment we are in. Um, People do seem quite shocked at that. Yeah, it's quite a staggering statistic for some. Yeah, it really is. And, 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 you know, if I'm a leader, each morning I wake up, I'm thinking 70%. You know, I think there has been far too much standing back and judging people and assessing them whether they are a good fit or whether they're mentally strong enough, all these things, with a real ignorance around the fact of the matter is our environment is having the biggest influence on those behaviors or those. individuals so yeah that's a, that's a critical to understand that so that that's a start i think the harvard have done that longitudinal study of adult development since the 1930s i think they say that 40 uh, percent of human happiness can be put down purely to their environment sort of reaffirms that as well so it's it's absolutely profound and we're learning more and more about it as i, as I mentioned before i like to think of it less in terms of psychological models and more in terms of biology and I know when I go into an environment my, what my hormonal reaction is to that. And I know that if I go into an environment tomorrow for the first time and someone comes and looks at me in the eye and smiles, it'll change my hormonal state immediately. Mm. Um, all of those things are really, really critical. So it's not just a big speech by a leader that shapes the environment. It's much actually more a lot of the conscious and unconscious little signaling that's going on. Yeah, sort of all the micro moments that you, how you interact with somebody in a in a space that impacts that feeling. Yes, their eye contact, their tone, their body language. Yeah, how inclusive they are when they communicate with more than one person. A ton of it, and a, and most of it is probably unconscious. Mm. We like to think we're rational and are in control of how we respond to situations, but everything that you're saying suggests that that's far from. <laughs> Far from being the case. It's, it's amazing, actually. One thing I've learned: I've teams have an unbelievable accurate radar for whether a leader or a manager is in it for them or in it for themselves. And I've, I've spoken to Michael Gervais, the US performance psychologist, who's also thought deeply about that. And both of our experiences are that is incredibly true. It is not a cognitive thing when mm. you put a new leader or, or a or any new individual in front of a team, but particularly someone in an authority position, people are unbelievably accurate at working out whether they are actually there to serve that group of people or whether they are there for their own ego and pathway to Mm. go further on. And teams presumably form that opinion quite quickly as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about psychological safety and these concepts, and sometimes people talk about them like there's a checklist. If you do five things, then you can create... I don't. I think it's much more complicated than that. And if a leader is even not through their language or what they say, but is giving off signals that actually, if this gets hard, 
I'm in it for myself, not necessarily in it with you, that will create a psychologically unsafe place. So I think, you know, I know a lot of work's being done at MIT and Stanford and other places to try and measure these things better. I think we're probably a decade away from being really, Mm. really able to use some of those tools. But I think we should go with our gut instinct and intuition around this and trust that. Oh, and you've worked with some amazing teams and organisations around the world, the Royal Ballet, the South African cricket team, Gareth Southgate's England football team you've mentioned, NATO, the British Olympic Commission, and countless commercial organisations as well. Are there, is there one that sort of stands out for you as the work perhaps that you're most proud of that you could share with us and, and, and perhaps why that is? It's, I do get a sense of very much belonging to people, so they're all very emotional experiences. Mm. I think one of the ones which stands out in, in, in belonging, I wrote, you know, wrote a cha- whole chapter about it, was working with the South African cricket team. I think that, for, I suppose from a global point of view, it was quite a significant project in the sense that we had a team which was very, very talented as the most diverse team in world sport. So on any given day, out of 11 players, we'd have six different ethnicities, religions, etc. But the team just couldn't sustain high performance so in, a, in 10 years they were world number one three times and each time they got that ranking they lost it within a month so so they had the talent to be the best team in the world but they couldn't sustain it they didn't have any consistency and so I, I was asked to get involved and just to sort of evaluate it from a culture point of view and the culture was very very superficial mm. um, and a lot of players didn't feel that they belonged there and they had a history of people from ethnic minorities coming into the team and performing poorly and being deselected quickly and it was a team which is run by white males particularly Afrikaners so you know I, I credit their courage to do it but we went to, took the whole team away into the bush into um, in the Transvaal for three days and we just had some raw incredibly honest conversations about the history of that country and the reality of their team culture and it became a joint aspiration that given what the country had been through and given that we're the most diverse team in the, in the world, let alone our country, we want to be a mirror for our country to look into and be proud of mm. in terms of inequality and a sense of togetherness. So we really started from a weak foundations and rebuilt them all, uh, including having Nelson Mandela's cellmate for 20 years come in and speak to the team about their experiences, um, introducing the African idea of Ubuntu, uh, which mm. is that your measure of your life is your impact on others. Just not forcing anything on them, but allowing them to explore it together. And they had some very raw, difficult conversations, um, a lot of tears, and they were just very brave and something they hadn't been prepared to do before that. But ultimately what we were able to do was find a common purpose, and then we set a goal in the next four years, the team was ranked number one for the whole period. Oh, wow. Same, same group of people. So to me, that is a quite a profound experience because that was changing the environment and delivering a completely higher level, more consistent level of performance. Oh, that's an incredible that's story. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Owen, for any individuals who are looking for a greater sense of belonging amongst groups that they're a part of currently – what sort of tips or advice do you have for those people? I think actually even before the interactions with others, 
I think one of the absolute joys of life is curating your own identity story. And I have I started doing that, as I mentioned, from a very early age. It was sort of supercharged when I was 12. Mm. But it's something that has never stopped. And I continue to learn about my heritage, understand my children, think about what I want to achieve in life. And so I actually think people, if you're anchored in an own, your own sense of who you are, that's very, very important. If you're not, I think it makes it more difficult to feel a sense of belonging with groups. Mm. So I would invite everybody just to, it's not about just going into your family history. It's not really about that. It's just it's just creating a clear narrative for yourself of who you are. Um, all the different aspects of your identity. You know, it can be religion, nationality, sexuality, just your interests, all of that, just articulate it and anchor yourself in that and be proud of it. That will in itself direct you to communities that you can feel a sense of belonging to. Mm. So to me, that is quite important. And one of the things actually of um, sometimes I get invited to talk to book clubs in New Zealand, head teachers, for example, I spoke to recently, and all their 12-year-olds now, the first three months of that year at school, they all go on a journey to explore by talking to parents and grandparents and the local community to, to explore who their ancestors were and where they come from and their experiences. Um, but then to distill that into three values that they want to take forward into their own lives. So when the kids present back to each other, they don't just tell each other the whole story of where they came from. What they do is they stand there and say, these are the values that I'm going to take into my life. And one of them, for example, was um, I want to be brave. And they ask, okay, so where does that come from? And that's my grandmother. She had cancer and she didn't stop smiling. Wow. I want to be like that. So uh, that's awesome, I think, If again, at that age of 12. But to, to help people curate just a coherent sense of who we are and not let others tell us who we are, mm. I think that's really essential. And then as we come into groups, I think the one thing I would say, and this is not just a sense of belonging, this is everything cultural, is sometimes people have a propensity to be passive and wait for leaders to create some magic or do something and that is never the way to um, transform culture in my experience we need to step up ourselves so one of the most powerful things in terms of creating a sense of belonging that you can do for yourself is actually when someone steps into your environment walk towards them look them in the eye smile them welcome them tell them they belong here create a space to hear their story and then reciprocate that with your own and proactively make connections for other people that will make life easier for them and their work more effective as well. That you don't have to have status to do that. And mm, but no. when you do that with other people, you will feel a deeper sense of belonging yourself. Amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, look, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. I, I find it inspiring listening to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some excellent stories that you've shared with us and very powerful. I feel moved after this conversation. So thank you so much, Owen, for your time. No, no, hey, I uh, appreciate you guys and you keep doing the amazing work that you do. So, Amelia... Uh, what a guy. What did you think about that? Well, I found it an incredibly interesting and really emotive conversation, actually. Jez, as you were listening to Owen, um, which of your many fascinating stories <laughs> um, embody the experience of belonging in the way that we were just exploring then? 
So I knew you were going to ask me this question, which hasn't made it any easier to prepare for. There's the rock band I've sung in for the last 10 years. Oh, the famous wasters that you won't let anyone from the office come and see any of your gigs. Um, (laughs) We have tried. (laughs) Yeah, Our band was most excellently summed up by someone standing at the bar at one of our gigs who said, what I like about you lot is you're clearly not expecting to get signed. (laughs) Harsh. (laughs) But look, we do share a sense of purpose and beliefs, albeit perhaps not expressed. So, you know, to learn new things, to push ourselves, Mm. to create something together, to entertain and to have some fun as well whilst we're at it. And when some of those things have been compromised for whatever reason over the years, it's not been anywhere near as enjoyable. uh, Mm. And our performances, and and I use that word loosely, um, (laughs) have got worse. But yes, believe it it or not. But thinking about Owen's concepts, you know, we do share a connection in terms of the people. We all had children at primary school together and were at various times part of the group that organised dad's and kids camping weekends every year. Mm. And then there's the origin story for us, you know, to, to Owen's point, uh, and our connection to it in the form of music. Now, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I like to think of it as, you know, at one point the light, the light shone on the Beatles and the right. Stones and Led Zeppelin. And now it shines on us. <laughs> I like your thinking, but perhaps a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> but maybe a better example then of where I felt a powerful sense of belonging was going back a, a long time ago now. Uh, mm. You might not have even been around, Amelia. <laughs> uh, um, I'm not sure I've ever mentioned my yacht racing stories. Oh, wow. Well, all I can say is I'm highly surprised it's taken us until episode three for you to wiggle this in. <laughs> I assume this would somehow make it into the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 2000, year 2000, I was very fortunate to be selected to take part in the BT Global Challenge Round the World Yacht Race billed at the time as the world's toughest yacht race. Mm. So the goal was to race safely around the world, competing against 11 other identical yachts, all crewed by amateurs with professional skippers, through some of the most hostile weather and oceans on the planet, with our families and sponsors and the world's media analysing our every move. Mm. Um, So I was a legger. I was selected by the company I worked for, who were a main sponsor of one of the boats, to take part in the first of seven legs. So I went from Southampton on the south coast of England all the way across the North Atlantic to Boston in America. And because I was on the first leg, I got to prepare with the core crew in a way that others joining later in the race just didn't get the chance to. Mm. And, and interestingly, in the months afterwards when we discussed our experiences, you know that, that opportunity that I had to, to come together with them at the beginning really changed my experience of belonging versus what others experienced. Yeah, that's interesting. What what do you mean by that? So I really felt part of the crew right from the start. So in the days building up to that moment where all of our, our yachts crossed the start line, we explored yeah. together you know, as a crew, you know, why were we doing it uh, and what it meant to each of us. And over two days where we came together, we came up with the sort of the distilled essence of what we stood for as a crew and, you know, all the shore-based support team as well. Mm. And that was three things, to be safe, happy and fast. So we knew that if we did this, we'd have a good chance of a podium finish. So we also shared our personal stories of why we wanted to be involved. So for some, that was about just escaping the rat race. For others, it was about fulfilling a dream of of wanting to sail around the world. And for others, it was just about wanting to feel alive. And for one lady in particular, it was, it was just about wanting to find a husband. 
And we talked about joining the ranks of and feeling physically and spiritually connected to this ancient tribe of sailors and mariners and explorers going back centuries who'd crossed oceans. Mm. For me personally, it was my first trip to the USA. And so sailing there from Europe connected me powerfully, uh, you know, not just with my crewmates, the people on board, yeah. but also those that had completed the journey in that way over the centuries before me, going back to the point that Owen was making about being connected to this, I, this yeah, link of, exactly. of, of people. And I, I think that really resonates as well with the story he shared with us about the work that he did with the South African cricket team and going away and talking about those stories with each other. Definitely. What about you, Amelia? Uh, when have you felt belonging in the way that Owen describes it? Yeah, so one thing um, for me that immediately does spring to mind was the experience I had as being part of the Liverpool University um, women's hockey team. Um, and I think there were sort of two elements of belonging. There was being part of the club altogether, being part of that society. And then there was also something about being within the team um, that I played for. Slight humble brag here. I was in the first team for three years. But anyway, what um, what Owen spoke about really resonated with me because as a group of students, we had complete ownership about what we did as a club, the way it was run. And we were effectively a giant group of friends doing what we wanted to and really loving it and setting those standards mm. and behaviours. You know, we spent also a really long time together over those three years. You know, we were training four to five times a week. There were socials, there was going on hockey tours and we really made lifelong friends as a part of that. Mm. And I think we're now no longer being at university, but as a graduate that sense of belonging is really noticed in the way that we celebrate. Um, once a year, we have a thing called Old Girls Dinner, where you, it's a weekend back up in Liverpool and a really nice big dinner with all the people f who are currently in their first year as part of the hockey club through to whoever still wants to come. You know, people have come having graduated 10 years ago. And it is that whole thing of you're part of that connected chain of people with yep. all the players that came before you you recognised where you were and then you're seeing all the people who the sun is then shining on them now. So it's, it's really special to be a part of. I have to say I'm always very jealous of the ones who are, who are still, still there. Still playing, and, yeah. Yeah, enjoying it all. And I think, you know, with a group of girls who I'm still really close with, we've developed a sort of ritual and a continuing this sense of belonging by all agreeing once a year to go away together. And we do that by paying £20 a month into an account and that sorts us for a weekend away. So it doesn't matter that you haven't seen those people and you feel it's so, so much warmth in that environment when we're all back together, whether we are camping or whether we're doing, you know, sort of weekend away in Cambridge. It's, um, yeah, really great to be a part of. And what is it about that community that makes you really feel like you belong there? What are the emotions that come to mind? I think sort of reflecting back on it, I was able to be completely myself, not judged in any way, shape or form. Nobody really took themselves too seriously. There was nobody, you know, pretending to be better than anybody else. And I mean, the amount of laughter over those three years and what we continue to have is just extremely um, warm and safe as an environment to be around. And I also think everybody cared massively for each other you know if anybody needed anything or was in any trouble there were you know everybody was always looking out for one another and I think in that environment that we were in um, enabled us when we needed to perform as a team on a Wednesday afternoon or on a Saturday when we were playing to really switch 
into everybody leaving everything they had on the pitch and to perform as high as they possibly could. Mm. You know, it didn't matter what the results were as long as we all knew that everybody had done everything that they possibly could um, to really try and win and succeed as a team. And, you know, all those, that change in behaviour, nobody had to tell anyone to stop joking around or to take it more seriously. It just happened naturally. It was all unwritten rules. And, I, I you know, I think building on that, something that I think speaks for the nature of the club is that we had people who were involved who had never picked up a hockey stick before coming to uni mm. across the three years showed zero interest in picking up a hockey stick and have never done since they've left uni. But they are integral to the club as social members and supporters. And it just shows that the environment you create, it doesn't matter whether you're directly involved in playing for a team. You're still part of that wider community, that sense of you belong here because you bring something to the group. Often that you find behind every sort of superstar performer, there's an army of folks who, without whom, the result would never happen. Exactly. So... The Liverpool Hockey Club is definitely where I've experienced my sense of belonging. So, Amelia, I think that brings us towards the end of our third episode. Uh, What did you make of all of that? It was a really great conversation. And just reflecting back on the chat that we had with Owen um, and, you know, sharing stories about Liverpool has really brought all those feelings back to life. So I think that um, thinking about where I am now that it would be really great to join perhaps a new sports club, a new hockey club in September and see if I can recreate this feeling or perhaps a new sense of belonging with a you know a new group of people. What about you, Jez? I was uh, really taken by what I was saying towards the end of our discussion about taking the time, and it does take time, mm. to really understand ourselves, yeah. you know, to curate the story of us. And then in turn, you know, as we meet people... Um, new people and people we know already, I guess, finding the opportunity to invite them to share their story too, um, and and seeing where that takes us. I think that I think that could be extremely powerful. So that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely, a really great takeaway, Jez. I think that brings us to the end of today's episode, and I'm really looking forward to the next episode of the Being Human podcast. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. You've been listening to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Just Add Water. Nurturing individual brilliance, forging collective strength. I cannot wait. That sounded awful. Why why did I end it like that? I cannot wait. (laughs) Sorry. You about to photograph? I was just about to photograph you, but I won't do that whilst you're speaking. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry. You wait. I'll get you back. (laughs) And we can breathe again.